Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Chris DeGenia Internet Radio. Today is Friday, November 4th, 2016. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Melissa and I are still on the road, and once again at the home of our dear friends Bruce and Nancy Bond in Northwest Georgia. We will be home in Panama City on Monday evening, if Yahweh willing, everything goes as planned. Next week, I will be back to my presentations of Paul's epistle to the Hebrews and the next portion of the Protocols of Satan. On Sunday, October 30th, I had appeared in Union, Kentucky at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People, and I spoke there for those kind people, Pastors Elmore, Don Elmore and Mark Downey, to whom I am appreciative for that opportunity, I presented an elaboration on something that I had written in 2013 and presented along with the Amos commentary entitled Scatterers and Gatherers. As the talk unfolds, you should probably be able to understand why I presented that particular subject at the Fellowship of God's Covenant People last Sunday. I left Pastor Elmore's introduction on the recording because it supplies some of the context for some of the things that I said during the sermon. I spoke for nearly two hours, which is becoming rather the habit whenever I visit that church in Kentucky. I'm going to present that here this evening. I pray that you enjoy listening. Praise Yahweh. I want to say a couple of words before we read the scripture verse. When I heard the story of uh, Bill Fink, it's quite a story. But it's true for all of us. All of us grew up in uh, the wrong churches. We didn't know the truth. How did we get here? I find that Bill was in the Catholic Church. And he wound up in prison. I have never been in prison. I, I, I hear the letters from prisoners. But my gracious, what a terrible place to be in. You're in a cell. And you, some have a roommate, some don't, a cellmate. But what do you do? God put it on his heart to study this book. And he also studied the ancient languages. He read all the read all the classics. He just read all day long. He would read and study. And when he found this message, I don't remember what you said you did if you tried to disprove it or something. But you eventually it became part of you. And man, it was then. I met him when he was in prison. I heard about him. Then I heard he got out. Then I talked to him in New York. But you know, he he didn't get out of prison and throw away what he had learned. My goodness. 
The man works the whole day long. If you go to his website, it's phenomenal. He's got all... I don't think you can read and listen to everything on it. He's just constantly putting out more and more material. Uh, if anyone who is a Christian, a Judeo-Christian, would go to his website, I don't think they'd be Judeo-Christian very much longer. You're, God has worked with his life. Uh, I counted a pleasure for to be acquainted with him. Well, let's all stand. We'll read this whole the scripture reading, and then Bill will come and bring his message, scatterers and gatherers. It's Matthew twelve, verses thirty through thirty-three. Oh, we have it up here. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men. But the blasphemy against the Holy Ghost shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever speaketh a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whosoever speaketh against the Holy Ghost, it shall not be forgiven him, neither in this world, neither in the world to come. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt. For the tree is known by his fruit. You may be seated. Come and bring it to Good morning. I'm sure that most people that have ever that have ever heard me only know me from the internet. I'm still not used to speaking in public or I'm used to speaking just not when people are looking at me. Right? <laughs> I sit in Florida. I sit in Florida with shorts and flip-flops or bare feet and t-shirts and have a bottle of beer in front of me and do my podcast and that's where I'm comfortable. For for most people I only exist electronically. Sometimes that's the way I prefer it because I can isolate myself, shut the world off, take long periods of time, and focus on my studies. So, except for Melissa, I miss prison. <laughs> if you could shut off the distractions in prison, you could shut them off anywhere. This is the third time that I've spoken here. 
and it's nice to speak in, in, in front of people and get to see them. That's something I can only do here. It's what you have here is special. It's probably the only Christian, Christian identity church east of the Mississippi that I know of. I mean, I know a few home study groups, but the only other one I know is Dan Gaiman's. That, that's actually a, a, a formal gathering. I'm still not used to the formal gathering thing because I haven't done it since seventh grade, except for my three times here. So two and a half, right? Two and a quarter, maybe. But what you have here is special, and I understand Pastor Elmore wanting many more people here. All of my, all of my energy is focused on reaching as many people as possible which is why I only exist on the internet. So, it's not to gather them, it, it, it's not to get them to agree with me and, and to have them join to me, not at all. It's to get them to agree with Christ and they have to spend many hours of their own reflection. If they choose to do that, a lot of people don't even want to reflect. A lot of people that go to my website never come back. I would bet 60% of the people that see my website see it once, and it's like, oh, and, and they never come back. The, the, the idea that I have is not to get people to join to me, but to confront them with our message and give them the choice to walk, to take it or leave it. And that's always been... My, my method and intention, and you'll get 1% or a tenth of 1% to come back regularly and to hang around and stick around, and that's the way it should be. That's fear not little flock. We don't want um, great masses of people who don't agree with Christ. We're not going to get them. Very often when he spoke, at the end of the day, there were only the 12. That's all that was left. Everybody else left. If he can't do better than that, <laughs> we never will. That's the way it is. This visit here to the Fellowship of God's Covenant People, and before I proceed, I would love to thank Pastors Elmore and Downey. This visit was on relatively short notice. We'd been waiting all year trying to travel, and we finally got a window. And when I, when I considered what I should present, I thought to speak on this subject of scattering and gathering. Upon being informed of certain events which took place recently here in this congregation, that, that I'm all too familiar with the, the individual in question 
Well, when I discussed my plan talk with Pastor Downey, he, he informed me that he himself had already said some of the things which you may hear from me today. Mark even quoted from an essay on this topic, which I had written a few years ago. I wrote Scatterers and Gatherers in 2013 and presented it not by itself, but at the tail end of one of my presentations on the prophet Amos. So if you've heard that, some of this is going to be familiar to you. I've hoped that I've elaborated on it sufficiently. Not that I want to talk for two hours again, but it could work out that way. <laughs> Mark even quoted from that original essay recently, as he informed me, when he addressed this topic. So when Mark asked me if I wanted to read what he had written, I politely declined, explaining that if I had said the same things independently, that would better serve as a second witness to what he has already said here over the past few weeks. In my opinion, if we really do seek to please Christ and edify the body of Christ, which we hope to be, we cannot entertain those who despise our core message. We can't entertain people that work against us in any public arena. If you have a private disagreement with me, fine. If you don't like me, fine. If you're working against the core message, that's a whole different story. What well, we can't have fellowship. None of the things that I say here today for your admonishment, rather, I would commend you for supporting Pastor Downey in his recent decision to ask someone to leave here. Therefore, I hope to say these things for your edification, that you have another assurance knowing that you have made the just and all too often necessary decision. And I pray you continue to make such decisions in the future because we should always expect that our faith is going to be tested. Well, we're not going to be left alone simply because we're all doing the right thing. The apostles weren't left alone. They killed them. That, that's what we have to expect those tests of our faith those trials to come, what, whether they're from outsiders or from illnesses, what we're going to get them. What we can't, just because we have the truth and hold it and love God, for that reason, he might test us more, not less. Now, Mark and I, and Pastor Elmore also, also have, all have our differences. We all have differences of opinion. We don't agree on everything by far. And, and most of those are very minor. And, and frequently, we have those differences of opinion because we've studied different things, we have different perceptions of events because of the things we studied, and, and that relates to both scripture and to history. But we all agree on the important points of the faith. We all desire to love our God and his law. That's what matters. That's 
that is first. When that's first, everything else can be put in the closet. It could be put on a back burner. It is on that basis that we can work together in spite of all the little minor differences. I decided while I was still in prison a long time ago that since everyone has not walked my walk, everybody has not studied the things that I've studied, not that they not that they're necessarily better than the things that you've studied. And since I in turn do not have the perspective that many others have on certain topics. that there are just a few important things which are required as the basis for fellowship. And once we can fellowship, we can learn from one another. Those things are three. That Jesus, or Yahshua Christ, as I prefer to call them, and, and that's one of those disagreements. I prefer Yahshua, the Hebrew form of the name, and a lot of people say Jesus, and I don't beat them up. Oh, no, you can't say Jesus. That's not his name. No, I'll never say that because it would be pharisaical for me to force you to use the, the, the form and the name that I prefer. And both forms are right as long as we know who we're referring to. I know who you mean when you say Jesus. I'm not one of those idiots that think, oh, he means Zeus. That, that's crazy, right? <laughs> that's nuts. If you say Jesus, I know you mean Yahshua Christ, the Son of God, and, and who is also God manifest in the flesh. I know you mean that. So I'm not going to beat you up over something silly. That's silly to do, to, to, to cause divisions over something that, that's not integral to the core message of the Scripture. Yahshua Christ is God incarnate. He alone is our King and Savior. We have to agree on that, or we have no basis for fellowship. That the children of Israel are, are among our white race, and they are exclusive to his covenants. The, 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 they are the exclusive recipients of the covenants and promises of God. And that the Jews and all non-whites are permanently excluded from those covenants. They never had anything to do with them. They don't belong. We are commanded to be separate from them. In the Old Testament and the New, in Exodus as well as in 1 Peter chapter 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And therefore, the Jews and all non-whites must be excluded from our communion. If we agree on those three things, as long as we have common agreement on those three points, then we can have fellowship and we can work together towards the edification of the body of Christ. And with this understanding... All other issues are peripheral. All other things are peripheral and don't matter. We should never fight over or be divided over anything else. We should never 
let any other issue drive a wedge between us. Of course there are other things which these three points imply. Since loving Christ, you can't, lean, you can't claim to love Christ and break his law. When you say you love Christ, then you're telling me, or I'm going to infer, that you're keeping his law. Loving Christ, as he says, insists that we keep his law. We must also love his law and keep his commandments. So in that manner, these three points have been my basis for fellowship ever since. Ever since I studied the scripture. And even if we ultimately can't agree on any particular topic, the earth is flat, the earth is round, the earth is hollow, the earth is solid, we can't prove it either way by ourselves. You can't prove to me the earth is flat right now. No way. And if you believe it's flat, I probably won't prove to you that it's a spear. But it doesn't say in Scripture that we have to believe in any particular geological paradigm. Nowhere we have to believe in Jesus and everything that's connected to that. I realized along a long time ago that an intelligent person doesn't have to choose one or the other. Never. Don't ever be forced to choose. What do you believe? The earth is flat, the earth is round. Come on, you've got to pick one. No, you don't. An intelligent person never has to make a choice. And I'm using that only, I, I, I don't get into the flat earth thing. I, I, I address the flat earthers all the time, not necessarily for their beliefs, but in some of the boneheaded things and ways that they try to prove it. That, that's not an issue here. I'm just using that as an extreme example of where people, even identity Christians, disagree and actually are vehement and, and crude towards one another and, and break fellowship with one another. And I see it all the time. I've had people dog me and dog me that the earth is flat and, and, and they want to convince me and everywhere I go online, in every other context, they're bringing up this argument that's out of context. And they just can't stop themselves. You don't have to make a decision. An intelligent person can take something that he can't prove, put it on a back burner and leave it there forever and say, I don't know. And that's That's one aspect of humility. If all men strive to agree with Christ, if all men agree with the gospel of Christ and the laws of Yahweh our God, then we don't always have to agree with one another and we could still love one another. As the Apostle John defined love, this is in 1 John chapter 2, 1 John chapter 5, love is keeping the commandments. Love is keeping the commandments of God. That is love. 
if we all chose to do that, nothing else matters. We can all get along naturally. So long as we strive, so long as we strive to agree with God. Of course, there are going to be times when we fail and we break a commandment or we do something stupid. And, and if we repent, we'll, we will renounce our own actions publicly and we have to be allowed space for repentance. We're not perfect. But love is striving to keep the commandments of God. So striving to agree with God we accept the correction of the scriptures. And whatever we may not like about one another is marginalized. It means nothing. And we could love one another. Our differences can be set aside for the greater good for the peace of the body of Christ. The egos of men, it's poorly translated in the King James Version, I'm sorry, the egos of men, Paul called them burdens in chapter 6 of his epistle to the Galatians. The egos of men cause divisions. But true humility is that willingness to set aside those minor differences and submit to the laws of God. In the organization of a congregation, we have offices which the apostles themselves had recognized as being necessary to the function, the proper function of a community of Christians. Among these are found pastors. Of course, there are other offices and gifts that I won't get into here. Personally, I don't use the title pastor. I have reasons for that. I prefer that the substance of my words are considered without any pretense of authority. And I could use the title pastor. I have an ordination certificate from December of 2000 from a Christian identity church. I've never, I don't even tell people generally, except that here I have to make that example. It's not that I despise people who use the title pastor. Not at all. I simply chose not to do that because I want people to believe me for what I say and not for the use of some title, which is more important to me because I only exist on the internet. People don't know me personally. A lot of people listen to all my podcasts and they think I'm some arrogant, overbearing person, and they like my message, but they don't like my, I don't know why I come off like that to a lot of people. My wife, Melissa, <laughs> She will attest to that. I'm really just laid back and always casual. I hate being formal and overbearing. And... So I would rather not use the, pa the title pastor only because I exist on the internet and I want people to listen to what I say and... and Study that and look at it and hear it without the pretense of a title, right? I don't need a big, that this is the, the church, that this is, I, I try not to be, do anything overbearing like that. Even if some people get the opposite idea, I, I don't understand why. 
But my, my point is this. Pastor isn't a title. Pastor is a function. Men who are chosen by a congregation to perform the function, they get the title. That's the way it is. Pastor is a function, and it's probably the most important function in any assembly because pastors are shepherds. The original meaning of the Latin term pastor is shepherd. That's all it is. A pastor is a shepherd, and one of the primary functions of shepherds is to keep the wolves from the sheep. If our desire is to hire is to follow Christ, we do not want to give acceptance to hirelings. We do not want to give acceptance to those men who would allow the wolves to devour the sheep. If our desire is to follow Christ, then we understand that the gate is straight, and those who would sneak in by a different way are wolves. So a pastor must be able, as part of his function, to identify the wolves and be prepared to confront them. Only then can he drive the wolves away, and only then may the sheep be fed in peace. When I was in prison, I spent 12 years studying scripture and the various subjects related to Christian identity. And some of my papers were already being published by Clifton Emmerheiser and posted on the internet long probably four years before I got out of prison. Then later on, coming out of prison, I was besieged by many supposed identity Christians who used the term pastor as a title, all of whom I found over time had agendas that I believed were contrary to scripture and even violated those basic principles that I agreed that we all must agree on, that, that I believed that we all must agree on before we could have fellowship. I was flabbergasted that many identity Christian, Christians were so quick to compromise on the race issue, which to me, the issue of kind after kind is the most important issue in scripture. You violate the race issue and you make the word of God subjective and you violate the covenants of God. You violate those covenants. You violate his law. The law of kind after kind. The law of not allowing bastards in the assembly. And many people that were identity Christian pastors were blurring the lines so that they could have more people in their congregation. Fear not little flock. We confront them with the message. If they don't agree with God, then we don't want them in our congregation. We have to drive the wolves away. These are the trials and pitfalls of the internet especially. A place even more dangerous than a public assembly 
Because on the internet, everyone and anyone can pretend to be anything they want to be. Through, through our internet presence at Christagenia, my website, this year we've reached over 30,000 people each month on average and perhaps 10 or 12,000 of them come back each month. So the internet is a two-edged sword and getting out of prison and not knowing anybody that was Christian identity except for a small handful of people I corresponded with, it took a while to sort out the characters who had set themselves up as internet pastors. It took a couple of years to do that. They are not all good. Just like in every other era of history and in every other possible venue, the enemies of Christ, and they were doing this in the first century, we read it right in Paul's epistles, the enemies of Christ have also infiltrated the assemblies of God on the internet and pervert and corrupt the word of God. They pervert and corrupt the, the they claim the two seed line message, and you see all, all this church of God, two seed line Jesus Christ on the internet, and you think, oh, he thinks like I do. And you start communing with this person and forget the placard. Read the substance real careful because you'll find not all of them think like we believe they should. I don't care how many disagreements I have with them as long as they don't disagree on those core concepts. I don't care if they believe that the earth is round or the earth is flat or, or we went to the moon or we didn't go to the moon or NASA's a conspiracy or NASA's a great wondrous achievement. It doesn't matter. All those things don't matter. They could all be pushed off to the side. Do they agree with Christ or do they want to blur the edges of the covenants to allow bastards into the congregation? I found that these individuals that I was dealing with, the ones that gravitated the quickest to me, had their own circle of approval, which provides them with a pretense of legitimacy. They sought to influence me, even making themselves into sycophants in the hope that I would accept their heresies. For this reason, the scriptures warn us about flatterers. The flatterer only seeks to corrupt a man. When I did not accept their agendas, they immediately began attacking me. They attacked me to this day. You can just search my name, and my, my mother's a Jew, and I'm a Jew, and, and I, I got an easy prison sentence because I ratted everybody out and all kinds of crazy stories, anything they could throw up there to discredit me because they want to drag people away from my message. They do this to steer people away from us, to soil our message with contentions and slanders, and ultimately prevent people from outside of Christian identity circles from finding the truth of our identity in Christ. That's what it's really all about. That's why when you do an internet search for Christogenier or, or my name, and, and you could do this with Kinsman Redeemer and Pastor Downey's name. And you'll find as many negative things as you find 
things from our own websites because these people flood the internet with lies. They do it all the time so that they could pull people away or prevent them from seeing what we have to say. Most of these people rarely or never produce any academic work of their own. That's the key to finding out who the charlatans are, who the scatterers are, and who the gatherers are. If I'm wrong about any, in any particular subject, and a Mark Downey or Don Elmore wanted to lay out an academic paper proving that I'm wrong and send it to me, I would gladly read it. If I'm wrong, I pray I'm corrected. But if I'm wrong about a subject, or, or somebody thinks I'm wrong without a subject, about a subject, and instead of addressing the topic that I'm wrong about, or that they think I'm wrong about, they start saying, oh, he's a Jew. <laughs> or or something, some other crazy accusation, then you know you've got a scatterer on your hands and not a gatherer. Because they will always attack the person, they will never attack the substance. And, and these are just some of the things that we deal with from day to day, every day, on Facebook, on other people's forums, in, in um, totally unrelated venues such as news websites. I, I find myself being slandered sometimes by some of these trolls that, that'll just want to... So, so and, and they do that hoping that the comment stays, even though it's out of context. They do that so that they hope it turns up in the search engines. They do it to get that search engine exposure, to steer real, sincere people away from the message. So I just wanted to cover all that so that you have a, a background on recent events and, and why this certain individual was turned away from here a few weeks ago. Real Christians may have to defend themselves against the wolves, but they do not attack other Christians. If you dislike me or disagree with something I said, fine. Go off and do your own work. Why do you have, why do you have to attack me? Just leave me alone. The workman is worthy of his wage. If you do your own work and it's of a better value, don't you think people would see that? Of course people would see that. You should not be concerned with me. After the disagreement that Paul and Barnabas had over the Apostle Mark's commitment to the gospel, Paul of Tarsus did not spend 17 years attacking Barnabas. Rather, Disagreeing with Barnabas, he went his own way and sought to edify the body of Christ as he saw fit, through teaching the gospel and the laws of God. But Barnabas was not a scatterer, and their disagreement was over a peripheral issue, not over a core issue, not over anything in the gospel of Christ. So later on, when Paul wrote his epistles to the Corinthians, he mentioned Barnabas, and he spoke well of him. He didn't say, oh, Barnabas is a Jew. He doesn't agree with me. Several weeks ago, there was a man here who had been in attendance here in the past, but his visit this time was different. He was promptly informed by Pastor Downey. 
that he was unwelcome and asked to leave. And if you haven't been on the internet with us these last three years, you would wonder why. The sheep don't always know why the shepherd functions as he does. Or even that they themselves are endangered by the encircling wolves. The sheep, they don't even know about the wolves until the wolf is devouring the sheep next to them. Last year, this individual had spent some time in the Christogenia Forum trying to convince us of the legitimacy of certain wolves. And when he was rejected, he left us and joined himself to the circle of our enemies on the Internet, speaking quite badly of us. He does not care about the fellowship of God's covenant people. He only cares about his own pride. He neglected to discuss the issues with us with where we disagree with him, and he resorted to personal attacks. Then, when he was ejected from our forums, he joined with those who had already spent considerable time attacking us. Where must we draw the line? If we strive to be good shepherds, we must draw the line as Christ did, between scatterers and gatherers, and the scatterers must be rejected. Basically, in relation to the gospel of Christ, there are two kinds of people, scatterers and gatherers. We do not want to be scatterers, and yet we must realize that not everyone will find agreement with every little thing that we believe, so we don't force them to. We must decide whether or not a fellow Christian is worthy of our fellowship by first determining whether or not they agree and walk in line with the primary fundamentals of the gospel of Christ. Here, in relation to these scatterers and gatherers, we shall endeavor to explain those fundamentals as Christ himself had explained them. As Pastor Elmore had presented the scripture reading for today, Yahshua Christ had said in Matthew chapter 12, that he who is not with me is against me. He that gathereth not with me scattereth, scattereth abroad. The King James Version added that word abroad, so I didn't pick up on it. This statement has two dimensions. Firstly, if we attempt to gather something which Christ is not gathering, then we are actually scattering. This is an assembly of sheep. You bring a pig in a door or a dog, you're scattering the sheep. You're going to force people to leave. According to the Gospel of Christ, we shouldn't throw our pearls before swine. If we attempt to gather something which Christ is not gathering, we are actually scattering and not gathering at all. So men should not attempt to gather figs from thorns or grapes from thistles. Secondly, the statement, He that gathereth not with me, also implies that if you are inactive, you have this message and you sit on it, that servant that hid his talent in the ground, if you are inactive, you must be in the category of a scatterer rather than a gatherer. You have to make a choice to be one or the other. Since even in one's inactivity, 
One is not gathering with Christ. For that reason, Christ said in the Revelation that he would spew the lukewarm out of his mouth. For our purposes here today, we're not going to talk about the inactive. We will set aside this aspect and discuss those who gather thorns and thistles rather than grapes and figs. And before we address the implications of scattering and gathering, we will say a few things about the teachings of Christ. When Yahshua Christ spoke, he didn't flippantly change the topic from one subject to another. People today are accustomed to that. You might talk with one of your friends. How's the weather today? Did you see that movie last night? Who's going to make it to the Super Bowl? What about that NASCAR race Saturday? This isn't the way Christ spoke. He, he didn't just have casual conversation and, and utter a bunch of disconnected sentences. Yahshua Christ, I'm sorry, rather when Yahshua spoke, each of the accounts and the parables which he provided represent concepts which are connected to one another and weave themselves into a consistent matrix of interrelated thoughts by which is formed a worldview. A worldview which is in harmony with the Creator and His law. So that is very often why we cannot take a single parable out of its provided context, two verses. The Judeo-Christians love to take one or two verses out of context and stick them on a table and interpret them all by themselves disconnected from the rest of the scripture. We can't do that. We can't take those parables out of context and imagine that we can interpret them independently of everything else that Christ had spoken. Rather, we must interpret them in a manner which is consistent with the things he's saying at the time around that parable, the events which are happening around that parable, and with everything else he had taught. In that manner, concepts which Christ linked together should remain linked together in our minds. And that is the basis for this understanding of our presentation. That is the basis for understanding this presentation of scatterers and gatherers. Yahshua Christ links three concepts in Matthew chapter 12. Scattering and gathering, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and good and bad trees. There should be no doubt that he is linking these concepts together, as the language fully demonstrates. Here we shall read from the King James Version. I decided not to read from the Christogenia New Testament for this presentation. He that is not with me is against me, and he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. Wherefore I say unto you, wherefore, that's a very important word there, I say unto you, all manner of sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven unto men, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, I'd rather say spirit than ghost for some reason, I'm sorry, shall not be forgiven unto men. And whosoever shall speak a word against the Son of Man, 
it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him. Neither in this world, neither in that which is to come, in the world to come. Either make the tree good. This is another direct connection to what he had just said about blasphemy the Holy Spirit. Either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. The language is important. Many readers attempt to extricate verses 31 and 32 from their context and define blasphemy to the Holy Spirit for themselves. I understand that blasphemy to the Holy Spirit might refer to other things in other contexts, but here it refers directly to scattering and gathering and to good and bad trees. And Christ links those concepts together. Here Christ says, He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad. And then he says, Wherefore? That word is from the Greek phrase diatauto, which means on which account, or for which reason, so that he that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad, for which reason, and then he explains, blasphemy the Holy Spirit, saying wherefore, he warns against blasphemy to the Holy Spirit, and therefore blasphemy to the Holy Spirit must be something which is committed by those who scatter in opposition to Christ who had come to gather. In another place, Matthew chapter 7, in another place, Yahshua Christ again mentions the act of gathering along with good and corrupt trees, just as he does here. In Matthew chapter 12. There, in Matthew chapter 7, he links these concepts with two other concepts. The straight gate and false prophets, who are not truly sheep, but who are really wolves. From Matthew chapter 7, from verse 13, Enter ye in at the straight gate, the narrow gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false apostles, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. There are only two kinds of trees in the world, and there's only one Israelite tree. All the others are corrupt. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Because Christ himself has linked these concepts together for us, it is not improper for us to list and evaluate all of these basic concepts in order to determine just what these allegories which he uses represent. 
First, we shall list the concepts once more, the concepts that Christ linked in Matthew 7 and Matthew 12. And we will list them all together now. One, scattering and gathering. Two, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Three, the narrow gate. Four, false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing. And five, good and corrupt trees. While many men have attempted to understand each of these things independently by themselves, they can truly only be understood in relation to one another because Yahshua Christ related these things to one another in Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew chapter 7. So here we shall discuss these concepts one at a time. And the first concept is scattering and gathering. Yahshua Christ is recorded as having said in John chapter 10, then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and go out and find pasture, men being sheep. The same Yahshua Christ who said that also said in Matthew chapter 15, I am not sent but unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the same Yahshua Christ who said in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine, is that God incarnate who said to the children of Israel in Amos chapter 3 verse 2, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. The children of Israel were punished in the destruction of their ancient kingdom, being cast out from the sight of their God and taken into captivity by the Assyrians and the Babylonians. Yet Israel, the children of Israel, the seed of Israel, are promised a later regathering and a return to Yahweh their God in Christ. All of the promises of this later regathering of Israel are exclusive to Israel. For that reason, the Apostle Paul later writes in Romans chapter 8, For whom he did foreknow, who did he foreknow? Those people in Amos 3 too. You only have I known, speaking to the same children of Israel. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. For this same reason, Paul is recorded as having said in Acts chapter 26, that I stand, and this is his trial before Herod Agrippa II, that I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, under which promise our twelve tribes. Instantly, serving God day and night, hope to come. He didn't say our twelve tribes and the Gentiles. He said our twelve tribes, period. For which hope's sake I am accused of the Jews. So the Jews aren't the 12 tribes, and the 12 tribes aren't the Jews. That's another story. And I have another digression. In the early centuries of Protestantism, there was um, Arminius, 
who had been opposed to Calvin. And one of them taught predestination. And the other one taught foreknowledge. And one of them said that you must be predestinated to the kingdom of heaven. And the other one said, you must be in God's foreknowledge to be in the kingdom of heaven. And this was the popular dichotomy between two groups of opposing Protestants that was exploited and is exploited unto this very day. Protestants still Judeo, Judeo, Judaized, Judeo-Christians still argue over this, over this very day. One group says it's foreknowledge. One group says it's predestination. Paul says it's both. They're both wrong. Paul says it's both. <laughs> to me, it, it's incredibly funny, but it's dead serious because this fight has affected our entire race for 400 years. They've been squabbling. Predestination, foreknowledge, predestination, foreknowledge. Wow. <laughs> All I can say is wow. Paul says it's both. The only time predestination, the only time the word appears is right there in Romans chapter 8. And Paul says it's both, predestination and foreknowledge. He foreknew those he predestined. And they're still arguing today. That's how shallow even the most academic, scholarly looking Judeo-Christians are. That's how shallow they are, that they could pit predestination against foreknowledge when Paul says that he predestined those he foreknew. I could carry on about that and we could have a three-hour talk. I'm sorry. These people of the 12 tribes who are the called, the predestined, the foreknown, the justified, can only be those same people of Amos 3.2, which Paul's epistles demonstrate over and over again in many other places. So wherever there are prophecies of gathering in the Old Testament, we see that the gathering includes only those same 12 tribes. There are no prophecies anywhere in the scripture of gathering for anybody else unless they're the tares being burned in a fire. Those, that there are no prophecies whatsoever of gathering unless they're the goats being sent to the fire. And in the end, there's only sheep and goats. And, and that right there has been something that I've had a huge challenge getting identity Christians to believe. They all want to create some third neutral type of person. But according to the word of God, there's only sheep and goats. I'm going to give a few examples of Old Testament prophecy. And when we read these, we must bear in mind that Christ said he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Psalm 106, from verse 47, Save us, O Yahweh our God, and gather us from among the heathen, or the nations where they were dispersed, to give thanks unto thy holy name, and to triumph in thy praise. Blessed be Yahweh our God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise ye Yahweh. A prayer to gather the children of Israel appears again in Psalm 107. 
Oh, give thanks unto Yahweh, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of Yahweh say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. In Isaiah, now those Psalms, I think it's unclear as to whether they were written by Asaph or David. And some of the surrounding psalms were written by Asaph and others by David. I tend to believe these were written by Asaph after the dispersions. He was a prophet of the post-Babylonian captivity. Most people reading the psalms don't even realize that. But the, um, the scribes at an early time mixed the psalms up, took them out of order, and separated them by five categories rather than leaving them in... in in, in their logical sequence that, that they mixed them up and put them into religious categories. And I, I don't know why. It's done. It's done. From Isaiah chapter 11. And he shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Then we have in Isaiah 43. Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. On both those occasions, it's Yahweh God speaking about the children of Israel and nobody else. Jeremiah chapter 29, long after Israel is taken into captivity and most of Judah. And I will be found of you, saith the Lord, and I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations and from all the places where I have driven you, saith the Lord. And I will bring you again to the place whence I caused you to be carried away captive. And that, too, is an exclusive statement for the children of Israel that were carried away captive. It doesn't apply to Kenyans or Chinamen. Jeremiah chapter 31. Hear the word of Yahweh, O ye nations, and declare it in the isles afar off, and say, He that scattered Israel will gather him, and keep him as a shepherd does his flock. Draw a direct line to John chapter 10, Matthew chapter 12, Jeremiah chapter 32. Behold, I will gather them, the children of Israel, out of all countries where I have driven them in my anger, and in my fury, and in great wrath, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Jeremiah 32 is talking to the same people that Amos 3.2 is aimed at. And I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely. And then we have in Ezekiel chapter 20. And I will bring you out from the people, meaning that the children of Israel will be gathered from all the other peoples wherever they're scattered, and will gather you out of the countries wherein you are scattered, with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out. Draw a direct line to Revelation chapter 19. Luke chapter 13, the New Testament, when we read this, we cannot imagine that God incarnate, Yahshua Christ, is talking about some different people that this God of the Old Testament was making these promises to. He is God. He's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. 
Luke 13 from verse 27. But he shall say, I tell you, I know not whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. They're all the believers that professed Christ, but they weren't Israelites. That's the only way he could tell them to depart, because all Israel will be saved, and I will cleanse you of all your sins. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you shall see, and he's talking about, he's talking to his enemies in Judea, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves thrust out those Edomite Jews sitting in the temple pretending to be God. And they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom. These prophets up here, Jeremiah, Isaiah, the Psalms, Ezekiel, Christ said that he came to fulfill them. So he's not changing them. He came to fulfill them. So we can't imagine in Luke that he's talking about other people that the prophets didn't talk about. He certainly isn't. Yahweh is God which gathereth the outcasts of Israel. And there are no promises to anyone but Israel in his gathering, in the end of days gathering of Israel. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Christ may as well be saying, do men gather Israelites from Negroes or Israelites from Chinamen? Of course they do not. Since all of the promises of his regathering are exclusive to the children of Israel, it is only those same children of Israel whom the presumed gatherers in the gospel, those bearing the gospel, are obliged to seek out. Attempting to gather anything but sheep to the sheepfold, one is not gathering with Christ, and one makes himself a scatterer rather than a gatherer. By attempting to add wolves, swine, or dogs to the sheepfold, one surely causes the sheep to scatter. Today's universalist denominational churches are no better than the ancient sinners of the leaders of Israel. And we read about them in Jeremiah chapter 23. Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. You could just draw a line from Jeremiah 23 right into those who blaspheme the Holy Spirit in Matthew chapter 12. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh God of Israel against the pastors that feed my people. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not visited them. Behold, I will visit upon you the evil of your doing, saith Yahweh. And I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all countries where I have driven them and will bring them again to their folds, and they shall be fruitful and increase. And I will set up shepherds over them which shall feed them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall they be lacking, saith the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign and prosper, and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days Judah shall be saved, and Israel shall dwell safely. And this is his name whereby he shall be called Yahweh our righteousness. And as another digression, I say the Lord and I say Yahweh to show you that I don't condemn you for saying the Lord. 
That's why I do it. It's on purpose. I'm not making a mistake, right? Uh, <laughs> to show that we should accept each other as long as we don't violate that basis for fellowship, which is provided us in the Word of God. To show that we shouldn't be pharisaical over names and titles, because we shouldn't be. We could disagree on those things, and that's cool. Because I know who you mean when you say the Lord. The second concept in this list of five concepts is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one facet, one expression or manifestation of the being, which is Yahweh our God. And the Holy Spirit is also Christ. He says that he's the Holy Spirit indirectly in John chapter 14. When he says that I will pray the Father and send to you, send to you another comforter. And then a couple of verses later he says, I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. He's telling us that he's the Holy Spirit because he is God. So the Holy Spirit is one manifestation of that being which is God, and Christ is another manifestation. And Yahweh God demands of the children of Israel in Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 19 to be holy as he is also holy. And Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak unto all the congregation of the children of Israel, and say unto them, You shall be holy, for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. The Hebrew word for holy is the word kadash. It means sacred or set apart. You really have to read ancient literature to understand what that means. The Greek equivalent of that word is hagios. And hagios is more fully defined in the lexicons as something that's set apart for the purposes of a god. A pagan Greek would take some of the tithe from his victory in, in, in a battle and bring it to the temple of Apollo and put it on the altar and offer that to the god. And that tithe, maybe it's gold or silver or whatever, would be considered hagios in the temple of that god. It would be holy in the temple of Apollo. I'm not promoting paganism, but that's the context, that's the historical context upon which Isaac was offered on the altar. We could take anybody and make an altar and say, Yahweh, this is yours, plop and make them holy, in our minds, Yahweh demanded Abraham put Isaac on the altar. Isaac's holy in his mind. In the ancient world, when you put something on an altar and offered it to a god, it became the property of that god. Isaac became the property of Yahweh when Abraham placed him on the altar. That's um, one aspect of scripture which is really un only understood through history. It's better understood through history. Hagios means set aside for the purposes of God. The only people in all history 
who were dedicated to the purposes of Yahweh at his command were those people in the loins of Isaac. And in that is the promise to Abraham, where it says, in Isaac shall I seed be called. Ishmael, the sons of Keturah, they weren't set on the altar and dedicated to God. He didn't ask for them. Of these were the children of Jacob to whom the promises fell, the vessels of mercy of Romans chapter 9, and the children of Esau. The children of Esau are also dedicated on that altar, but they are the vessels of destruction, of which Paul made his analogy in Romans chapter 9. That Esau forfeited his opportunity to bear the vessels of mercy are because he was a race mixer. He took wives of the daughters of Canaan. That's very evident in Genesis chapters 26 and 27. Rebecca said, my, my heart is troubled for the daughters of Canaan, for the daughters of Heth, meaning the Hittites. And if Jacob marries those girls, what good is my life? That's what she said. Esau had already married those women. So in Genesis chapter 27, Jacob is told that if he took a wife from of the women of his own kinfolk, that the promises to Abraham would fall upon him. And so he did. For the children of Israel, this holiness which they obtained through Isaac is reinforced in Exodus chapter 19, where it is a part of the terms of the Old Covenant. Now, the Old Covenant is broken. I could explain that the Old Covenant is broken. Yahweh explains it. It's right in Zechariah, maybe chapter 7, 8, I forget, where he says that he took beauty, which was the covenant, and broke it because the people had already broken it. The Old Covenant is broken, but where the Old Covenant is broken, the holiness is still there because the holiness, even though it became part of the law, began before the Old Covenant. The holiness of the children of Israel begins with Isaac being placed on the altar. It doesn't begin at Mount Sinai. The children of Israel had that holiness reinforced in Exodus chapter 19, where it is a part of the terms of the Old Covenant. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice, indeed, and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. If we're obedient as a people, we can be a holy nation. If we're disobedient as a people, that doesn't change the word of God to Isaac, that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, and we can have an individual relationship with God, which is explained in the prophets. Isaiah chapter 56, that you can keep the Sabbaths and, and the laws and stay in the favor of God, but we can't be a holy nation. We can only be a punished nation when we break his commandments. And that's what we are right now, a punished nation. A holy nation, in biblical terms, is a nation set apart for the purposes of God, separated from all other nations. Therefore, Peter 
knowing that his intended audience was the children of those same Israelites dispersed in antiquity, and knowing that this plan of God's for the children of Israel had not changed with the new covenant, makes a direct appeal to the words of God at both Exodus chapter 19 and Hosea chapter 1, which is a prophecy which only concerns the children of Israel. And he said in 1 Peter chapter 2, but you are a chosen generation. And that word should have been translated race. Otherwise, there are no more chosen generations after the first century. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who had called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And that's really an allusion to certain prophecies in Isaiah, the children of the captivity sitting in darkness, which in time past were not a people. This is Hosea chapter 1. Peter's talking to the same people that Hosea intended. But are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, Hosea chapter 1, but have now obtained mercy. So blasphemy the Holy Spirit, which in Matthew chapter 12, Yahshua connects to both scattering and gathering and making the making of a tree, good or corrupt, must refer to speaking against that command that the children of Israel be holy and be a separate people. Because Christ made that connection. And the third concept is the straight gate. Yahshua Christ is the door of the sheep. He came only for the sheep. No one gets to the Father except through him. So only the sheep, only the children of Israel, have access to God. No other race has access to God. Of course, Christ was not speaking to anyone but Israel when he spoke, of, when he spoke all of these parables. No one else was ever a candidate. Israel alone has the promises of redemption and salvation mentioned throughout the Bible. The city of God described in Revelation chapter 21 has on its gates the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. If you're not of one of those tribes, you're not, you're not getting through one of those gates. That's how straight the gate is. And the fourth concept, which Christ connects, is false prophets. There are two different types of false prophets described by Paul. Wolves among the sheep, which Christ mentions in Matthew chapter 7. Wolves among the sheep seeking to devour the flock, and sheep seeking to make their own way. And some of our enemies out there in the world are indeed sheep, but they're seeking to make their own way. This is found in Acts chapter 20, where Luke recorded Paul's warning to the leaders of the assemblies gathered at Miletus. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock, over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, or bishops, as the word is often translated in the King James Version, to feed the church of God which he has purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. 
Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them, because it's the egos of men that create divisions in the body of Christ. The egos of men, oh, I know a new thing, and I just made it up, and I'm going to teach it to people so they follow me. A real pastor wants you to, wants you to follow God, not him. It is the averred purpose of Yahshua Christ to gather Israel. Here we have seen Christ warned about wolves in sheep's clothing seeking to devour the sheep. Wolves seek to enter the sheepfold in order to rob the sheep. Yahshua Christ linked the false prophets who are inwardly ravening wolves to those who would gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles in Matthew chapter 7. And we're going to read it again. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many which find it. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Beware of false prophets. He's not changing the topic. He's not going from the football game Sunday to the NASCAR race today. This is a related subject. We can't imagine that he just had a mind like, the television set that flashes different unrelated pictures at you all day. And that's the way that the television programs people to think today. But that's not the way our God thinks. And when he gives you one sentence after another after another, those ideas can't be separated one at a time and interpreted any way you feel like it. He's connecting those ideas directly. So false prophets seek to steer people away from the straight gate. Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. This too is a connected concept. He's not just changing the top. Oh, I said enough about that. Now I'm going to talk about the weather. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit. But a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. And that's why a bastard can never enter the congregation of God. Every tree that brings forth not good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Therefore, the false prophets would be those universalists who would insist upon gathering something other than sheep into the sheepfold. These are those who would cause the scattering and destruction of the sheep. Christ never told his followers to feed anything but sheep. They are not wolves, dogs, goats, pigs, or swine who are fed and then somehow become sheep. They were sheep in the first place. That concept is found nowhere in Scripture that we could turn a dog or a pig into a sheep. They must be sheep in the first place and then they may be fed. Following his resurrection, 
Joshua Christ told Peter three times that if he loved him, he must feed his sheep. John chapter 21, verses 15, 16, and 17. Peter was getting annoyed. The story of the Israelites as the sheep of God goes back into the Old Testament. If Christ is telling Peter to feed my sheep, Peter must have had a way to find out who the sheep were. Since the Old Testament Israelites are very frequently called the pasture of God, the flock of God, the sheep of God, throughout the, the, the Psalms and the prophets, Peter must have known that he was only supposed to feed those people who were Old Testament Israelites. We're going to give a few examples of those scriptures. And understanding these scriptures, we must understand that no one else but the children of Israel could possibly be the sheep of God. These same references of Israel to the sheep are often found in the very same writings which also spoke of the gathering of Israel. Psalm 74. O oh God! Why hast thou cast us off forever? Psalm 74 was written by Asaph, a prophet of the post-Babylonian captivity. The children of Israel were already scattered among the nations. Why does thine anger smoke against the sheep of thy pasture? Remember thy congregation, which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance, which thou hast redeemed, this Mount Zion, wherein thou hast dwelt. Lift up thy feet under the perpetual desolations, even all that the enemy has done wickedly in the sanctuary. So the enemy had already invaded the sanctuary. That's what caused ancient Israel to be dispersed. And now today we have enemies in all our sanctuaries. Thine enemies roar in the midst of thy congregations. They set up their ensigns for signs. Jeremiah chapter 50. Israel is a scattered sheep. That defines the sheep. The word of God is wrong nowhere. You cannot find any verse and say, oh, this proves your verse wrong. If you think one part of the Bible proves another part of the Bible wrong, you're taking something out of context, and it's you that's wrong. Because the scripture doesn't fail. Israel is a scattered sheep. The lions have driven him away. First, the king of Assyria had devoured him. And last, this Nebuchadrezzar, king of Babylon, has broken his bones. Therefore, thus saith Yahweh of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will punish the king of Babylon and his land, as I have punished the king of Assyria. And I will bring Israel again to his habitation. And he shall feed on Carmel and Bashan, and his soul shall be satisfied upon Mount Ephraim and Gilead. In Ezekiel chapter 34, the story, this chapter tells the story of the lost sheep in its entirety. And the word of Yahweh, we won't read the whole thing though. And the word of Yahweh came unto me saying, Son of man, prophecy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophecy and say unto them, Thus saith Yahweh God unto the shepherds, Woe be to the shepherds of Israel that do feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? Ye eat the fat. And ye clothe you with the wool, ye kill them that are fed, but you feed not the flock. The diseased have you not strengthened, neither 
Have you healed that which was sick? Neither have you bound up that which was broken. Neither have you brought again that which was driven away. Neither have you sought that which was lost. But with force and with cruelty have you ruled them, and they were scattered. 620 B.C. They were scattered because there is no shepherd, and they became meat to all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and upon every high hill. Yeah, my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. And that's the story of the gospel. It starts in Isaiah chapter 53. Blessed are the feet of those who proclaim the gospel of Christ on the mountains. That's the spread of, that's a prophecy of the gospel to go after these scattered sheep that were scattered 700 years before Christ. In many other passages, in both the Psalms and the prophets, the children of Israel are identified as the sheep, the lost sheep, the scattered sheep, the flock of Yahweh. Thus they are in the New Testament. It hasn't changed. Yahshua Christ identified them in that same manner. Psalm 80 was another psalm written by Asaph, who was a prophet of the Babylonian captivity. It is a prayer which makes an appeal to Yahweh God, the true shepherd of Israel, to gather his sheep from their captivity. Here it is from the King James Version, and we will read it all. I give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, Thou that dwellest between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up thy strength and come and save us. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. O Yahweh, God of hosts, how long wilt thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? I will punish you for your iniquities. Thou makest us a strife under our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt, the children of Israel in the Exodus. Thou hast cast out the heathen, the Canaanite nations, when the children of Israel went into the land of Canaan. Thou preparedest room before it, and did caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it, and the bows thereof were like the goodly cedars. She sent out her bows under the sea, an allusion to the early migrations of the children of Israel, long before the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And her branches under the river. Why hast thou then broken down her hedges, so that, all they which pass by do pluck her up. The boar out of the wood does waste it, and the wild beast of the field does devour it. And I don't think they had a problem with hyenas coming in and eating people. If the children of Israel are sheep, the boar and the wild beasts of the field, there are other people that aren't Israelites. If sheep is an allegory for people, then so are the boar and the wild beast. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven, and behold, and visit this vine, and the vineyard which thy right hand has planted, and the branch that thou madest strong for thyself. It is burned with fire, it is cut down. 
They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Asaph, being a post-captivity prophet, is lamenting the destruction of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And Israel is still in Asaph's mind as he writes this because he opens the psalm mentioning Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Let thy hand be upon the man of thy right hand, upon the son of man, whom thou madest strong for thyself. So we will not go back from thee. Quicken us, and we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O Yahweh of hosts, cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. The entire biblical context is the dispersion of Israel, and the regathering of Israel, and the salvation of Israel in Christ. And Psalm 80 is a, a snapshot of that entire story. So when we get to the New Testament, we can't identify the sheep as anybody but the children of Israel, and the children of Israel according to the law of God. Bastards still can't enter the congregation. This is the challenge we face for many of those Christian identity pretenders, those people we mentioned earlier. They despise us because they insist that the boars and the wild beasts are people, even men, that can enter the kingdom of heaven along with the sheep. And we're constantly confronted with this. And I never, in 12 years of study in prison, expected to be confronted with this among identity Christians. Never. I knew that I had that battle to fight with Judeo-Christians. I knew that I would encounter Judeo-denominational pastors and people that had that false conception. But those who claim to be identity Christians should believe the identity part of Christianity where somebody has to be able to identify the sheep and the wolves and the wild beasts and the boars. <laughs> These people despise us. They desire to create a third category of hominids, which the scripture does not define. In scripture, in the end, there are sheep and goats. There are wheat and tares. There are good and bad fish. Out of all the fish in the net, the sheep fish go into the kingdom of heaven. And all of the others, the goat fish, are destined for the lake of fire. There is no third neutral category of fish. When, when the fishermen raise the net up, the good fish are poured into vessels, Matthew chapter 13, verses 49, 50, 51, 52, the parable of the net. It's right there somewhere. When they bring that net out of the sea, the good fish are put in vessels. They're saved. Only the children of Israel have their promise of salvation. And he doesn't say to put the bad fish back in the sea. He says to put the bad fish in the fire and destroy them. None of the fish go back in the sea. In the end, there's only two categories of fish. One goes into vessels 
and the other goes into fire. How can we create a third category on our own that Christ did not describe? No, we can't have fellowship with anybody, any bastard, your Paul of Tarsus, Hebrews chapter 13, maybe chapter 12, I really don't know the Bible. He says you're either a son or a bastard. There's no in between. He doesn't say you're either a son, a bastard, or a pure Chinaman. He doesn't say you're either a son, a bastard, or a pure African. No, you're a son or you're a bastard. There's no third choice. And we're constantly fighting with these people who want to create a third choice on their own. We can't make excuses for those who are not sheep. This is why there are pretenders in Christian identity who hate us. They have agendas and hate us for holding the line on who is to be gathered into the kingdom. We must continue to refuse them. We must not have communion with scatterers. As soon as you allow for a third neutral category, and oh, they could hear the word of God, that's the next step is baptizing niggers. That's the next step. There is no way around it. Finally, the fifth, the fifth concept. Good and corrupt trees. Psalm, Asaph, Psalm 80, I'm sorry, Psalm 80, which we have just read, written by Asaph in captivity, tells us that Israel is a vine planted by Yahweh. It links the sheep of Yahweh's pasture with the branches of the vine. When Christ came to give his parables, he used those same allegories. He wasn't using those allegories, just pulling them out of thin air. He used those allegories because he wanted us to link these things to the scripture. He wanted us to see these things in the scripture. When he said, I am the true vine, we could go back to Psalm 80 and we could see who planted that vine. When he said, I've come for the lost sheep, we could go back to Ezekiel chapter 34. and see exactly who the lost sheep are. He didn't use those allegories any differently than they're used in the scriptures of the Old Testament. Psalm 80 links the sheep of Yahweh's pasture with the branches of the vine, which reinforces the fact that this last item in our list here of these five concepts truly represents a concept related to sheep as opposed to goats, or grapes and figs as opposed to thorns and thistles. And the psalm tells us that the vine is the race of people that Yahweh brought out of Egypt. And Christ later said to his apostles in John chapter 15, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abides in me, and I in him, that same brings forth much fruit, for without me ye can do nothing. The Adamic race is nothing without their God. That's the first thing we should learn from that. 
and without keeping his commandments. And the words of Christ in that passage of John 15 are very much like that first promise of salvation to the Adamic race, which is found in Genesis chapter 3. And Yahweh God said, Behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand, and take also the tree of life, and eat and live forever. That's the first promise of salvation in the Bible for the Adamic race. In the Garden of Eden, there were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This first tree is the tree planted by Yahweh, planted by God, represented by the wheat in the parable of the wheat and the tares, where the second tree is represented by the tares, who were sown by the devil. That's why the serpent is a representative of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is not a light thing that it is the non-Adamic races who in prophecy are described as a flood from the mouth of the serpent in Revelation chapter 12. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for their sinful interaction with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, represented by the serpent, which Revelation chapter 12 connects to the devil and the fallen angels. The man, collectively, would be saved by grasping onto his own race, and its author, the tree of life, which has God as its originator, as Adam was also a son of God, we're told in Luke chapter 3. Therefore, Paul had asserted in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. So there are deep spiritual reasons why we can't have communion with people of the other races. Because they're from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We know they're not from the tree of life. The tree of life are the Adamic race kind after kind according to the word of God. When the children of Israel were found mingling with the Canaanite races and adopting their idolatrous practices, Yahweh exclaimed in Isaiah chapter 17, Because you have forgotten the God of thy salvation, and have not been mindful of the rock of thy strength, therefore shalt thou plant pleasant plants, and shalt set it with strange slips. What are those strange slips? That's our punishment. Race mixing is part of our punishment for turning our backs on God. Jeremiah chapter 2 uses the same language. And Yahweh was admonishing the children of Israel for race mixing, where he said, Yet I had planted thee a noble vine, that noble vine that he brought out of Egypt, the children of Israel. Holy a right seed. We may not be perfect, but... We are what God wanted to create when he created the Adamic race. How then are you turned into the degenerate plant of a strange vine unto me? Those that are broken cisterns that we create when we mingle our race, those that describes the sin that Jeremiah later talks about in that chapter that can't be washed off. Israel, taken into captivity, is portrayed as a ruined vine and also as a ruined fig tree. In several places in Ezekiel, Joel, Nahum, there was a promise of cleansing in their captivity. There are actually several of them. 
the word of God says in Amos chapter 9, For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like corn which is sifted in a sieve, yet shall not the least grain fall upon the earth. In Matthew chapter 12, immediately after explaining that blasphemy of the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven, Yahshua Christ said, Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and its fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. Blasphemy the Holy Spirit is speaking against Yahweh's command of separation for the children of Israel. Yahshua related that to the making of a tree, either good or corrupt. The only way that man can make a, can make a tree, the only way that man can make the vine of Israel anything, is to breed and multiply. That's the only way we can make the tree whereby we have an option to either sprout up as a noble vine or a strange slip. When we race mix, we're creating strange slips. Therefore, when the ancient Israelites engaged in idolatry, they began race mixing, and they set Yahweh's vine with strange slips or turned it into the degenerate plant of a strange vine. So it says of the sons sins of Israel in Hosea chapter 5, that they have dealt treacherously against Yahweh, for they have begotten strange children. If you want to read, if you want to understand Jeremiah chapter 2, read Hosea chapter 5. These strange slips, these leaves of this degenerate plant of a strange vine are bastards. Yahweh pronounces in the scripture at Deuteronomy chapter 23 that a bastard shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Even to his tenth generation shall he not enter into the congregation of the Lord. So many people, this is incredible, and I have heard this from the mouths of so-called prominent, popular Christian identity pastors. They'll claim that, oh, you, you, you had a mixed-race baby. Well, after nine generations of more mixing, the, the offspring will be okay. And people get deceived by that. They get fooled by, oh, that sounds good. And really what in essence they're saying is this. You had a mixed-race child? We'll create nine more generations of bastards and hopefully get something good out of it. So they're really teaching you to sin nine times worse than the first sin. That's crazy. And that's what they teach. And it's nuts. The phrase 10th generation is an allegory which means forever. Because after nine generations, a bastard's still a bastard. Okay, so let's start over again. Let's count to 10 again. <laughs> after nine generations, more, a bastard's still going to be a bastard. It's an allegory which means forever. There's no correcting hybridization. Paul speaks of the chastisement of the children of Israel in Hebrews chapter 12, and he says, But if you be without chastisement, wherefore all are partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. And that could be taken out of context or out of misunderstanding. Yeah, people from other races can suffer harm, but that chastisement isn't from God. 
and they have no consciousness of the reasons or causes of that chastisement in the, the paradigm of a relationship with God. They don't even think that way. Salvation is destined for sons and not for bastards, as Paul had explained in chapter 2 of his epistles for the Hebrews, where he said that, for it became him, speaking of God, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, they were already sons. He chose to do what he did to save people and bring to glory people who were already sons. To make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. A bastard is not of one. A bastard is of two or three or four or pick, pick a number. Bastards, by definition of the word, can only be of two or more. They can't be of one. Therefore, Yahshua Christ said in Matthew chapter 15, Every plant which my heavenly Father has not planted shall be rooted up. We have to accept that there are races of people here that did not come from God. And there are other scriptures that support that. Christ told his enemies, the Pharisees and, and the Sadducees, who were demonstrably Edomites, you are from beneath. I am from above. They were created here on earth because they're bastards. They were not created by God in heaven. We cannot blame God for, for the mistakes of men. We can't give him credit for our mistakes. Every bastard is a race of a different kind and represents something which God did not create. In the end, there is only one tree in the garden of God. We start out with two trees in Genesis. Read Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and two allegorical trees. Read Genesis chapters 2 and 3 and, and cut out the rest of the Bible and go right to Revelation chapters 21 and 22. We started out with two trees. We end up with one. There's a deep spiritual reason for that. Because God didn't create the other races. They're all bastards. That's not explicit in Genesis. But Christ came to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. So we can't imagine that the whole story's in Genesis. Don't ever imagine that. Otherwise, how could anything be kept secret from the foundation of the world. And all of these people try to pick up their Bibles and write a commentary, and they're going to start at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. And they're not going to pay attention to any later part of the Bible until they get to it. And they're going to interpret the whole Bible, and some of them take the other races and make them beasts. And those people who take the other races say, oh, they're the beasts of the creation in Genesis 1.25. Those same people, when they get to the Revelation, consider the other races to be men. I don't know how they do that. It's like a Jew bait and switch. You go to the TV store expecting a television for $100 that's a 28-inch TV, and the Jewish merchant tells you, oh, we ran out of them, but I got this 19-inch TV for $200.
That's a bait-and-switch tactic that the Jews have always pulled. They do the same thing with the Bible over and over. They're beasts in Genesis. They're men in Revelation. Imagine that. <laughs> Others try to say that there were two creations of Adamic man. One in the sixth day and one in the eighth day. I hate to tell you, the Bible does not support that at all. And the word Adam... And, and the, the, the grammatical phrase, the grammatical way it appears in Hebrew is consistent throughout Scripture. There's only one Adam. God's not the author of confusion. He's not going to create ten races, call them all Adam, and, and then distinguish one of them apart from the others. Much later in Scripture, it says that the earth and everything in it was created in six days. There's no room in Scripture for an eighth-day creation. The Adam in Genesis 1 is the Adam in Genesis 2. I know what Christian identity teachers have taught in the past. And it sounded good at the time. It sounded like a good way to squeeze niggers into the kingdom of heaven by having God make them in Genesis chapter 1. But it's just not true. It's not true at all. It can be well proven that the Adam in Genesis chapter 1 is the Adam in Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 4 just starts a separate book. Moses, in fact, right in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. It starts a separate book in Genesis chapter 5. Moses didn't write one book of Genesis. He wrote a creation account. And then sometime later, he wrote the account of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And then sometime later, he started... A new version of the same account, which carried history through the, the captivity of the children of Israel, and that begins in Genesis chapter 5. This is the book of the generations of Adam. Well, if the book starts in Genesis 5, what happened to those first four chapters? They were just separate books at the time they were written, and that could be demonstrated and, and the Jews make all sorts, and our enemies make all sorts of contention, because today they're all in one book. But they didn't start out that way, and that can be demonstrated. That's another digression. I'm sorry, there's so many digressions. But when we get to Revelation chapter 22, there's only one tree. That other tree is gone. It's in a lake of fire. That's where it is. Everybody that's not an Israelite, anybody that's not of our Adamic race, is in a lake of fire. And there's only one tree left. And he showed me. A pure river of water of life. Clear as crystal. Proceeding out of the throne of God and a lamb. In the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river. There was the tree of life. Which bare twelve manner of fruits. No coincidence to the twelve tribes of Israel I'm sure. And yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. The nations of Israel. That, that's a, another debate. When Abraham was given the promise that in his seed all the nations would be blessed. If you really go back and read that in Genesis chapter 12. Read Genesis chapters 10 and 11. Because in Genesis chapters 10 and 11 it says. These are the nations which descended from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. You can't imagine that any other people could be squeezed in to Genesis chapters 10 and 11. 
the descendants of Noah, were all white, they can all be found in history. Every single one of them. They were all white nations. Even the Ethiopians were originally white. Imagine that. The Egyptians, they were all originally white. They've all been overrun with other races since then. But they were all originally white. There are no Chinamen in Genesis chapter 10. The Catholic Church tried to put them there for centuries, but it flies in the face of history and archaeology, and it flies in the face of common sense. Because no matter how many times two white people have children, a Chinaman just ain't going to pop out. <laughs> a lot of this is just basic Christian identity knowledge that's been around for a long time that I was quite surprised that there were people who considered themselves Christian identity pastors and set themselves up pedestals on the internet and went on speaking circuits and things like that and didn't accept these things, that tried to pervert these things, tried to corrupt these things. Those who are truly gatherers are gathering with Christ. Those who are truly gatherers are only gathering sheep. They are gathering only the sheep who are the same children of Israel we find in the Old Testament. And those who are truly gatherers would not dare make excuses for goats, wolves, pigs, or beasts. Those who do not gather with Christ are scatterers because they attempt to gather something into the sheepfold other than sheep. A scatterer is, in essence, a blasphemer of the Holy Spirit, a man who's attempting to gather grapes from thorns or figs from thistles, being on the wide path to destruction by bringing wolves in among the sheep, which results in the making of corrupt trees and setting. the garden of God, with strange slips. Evil communications corrupt good manners. Gatherers cannot keep company with scatterers. You cannot gather the scatterers without being an accomplice to their scattering. And those people must be kept out of the assembly. So quite often, we're better off with a small flock. Thank you. Praise Christ. Amen.